Good morning, marketers, and welcome to the If You Market podcast brought to you by Mountaintop Data. We are the only podcast that markets the shit out of it. I'm Sky Cassidy, and today we'll be talking with Jose Palomino of ValueProp about focusing on success uh, versus changing the world and basically how to win. Uh, Jose is the CEO of ValueProp Interactive, where he helps uh, mid-market B2B companies struggling with sales growth uh, win more and better business. Uh, even in commoditizing markets, which is something that I, I noticed that I really love seeing there, that, that you guys focus even on, on markets that are not quite commodities, but turning into that, because that's, I think, really important and people don't realize. But I also noticed, uh, Jose, your company tagline, business growth on purpose. I love that. I love that. Uh, so thank you for coming on the show. No, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. So business growth on purpose. Let's just focus all on that. Uh, how and how did you come up with that with that phrase? Is there? It seems like there's way more thought to it than just "Hey, that sounds good" at one point. And it oh no no lucky. definitely it comes. It, the whole backstory is really the history of the business and and the work we've been doing for close to 15 years now. And often in that small to mid market, you know, companies that say two to 20 million in revenues, you know, give or take, right? Um, they they don't really have a strategic plan of any kind. In fact, they're a bit averse to the idea of a strategic plan. They feel that's big company stuff. So, and they're right. They don't need 200 page strategic plans. Like if you're Dow or DuPont or G. They need a plan for the day, but not like a life plan. Right. They don't need a life, but they do need a plan, a sense of how they go to market. So what ends up happening is they, they do a lot of the activities, but it's never part of like a game plan. And like, you know, even if you were fielding a, uh, you know, a, a, a pickup game, a football, a touch football game or something, you'd say, okay, this is what we're going to do. You would at least make that declaration. This is what we're going to do. Right. We're going to, you know, I see you over here. I think you can, you can probably run faster than that guy on that corner. We're going to run a route this way and, and so on. Having some strategy versus just saying, everybody go and we'll see what happens. Exactly. And see what yeah. happens. And so you end up with a lot of, we see what happens. So really thought about that. And yet they, they desire growth, right? At least a you know, good, healthy business. They understand it. you need to grow. You need to be wanting to grow. And, and, but they're not doing it on purpose. So the classic example is, you know, they show up, spend 50 grand on a trade show, you know, the classic 10 by 10 booth outside the men's room at a major trade show for 50 grand. Um, and they brought all their team out there and they're showing up and they're saying, okay, well, hopefully, hopefully we'll meet some people here that could be useful to us and so on. I said, how long have you been doing this? And this is a very classic, constant conversation I've had with many, many owners. And they say, well, you know, we've been doing it for the last 10 years, last 15 years. I said, how much business can you point to this show generating for you? Well, and you get that, well, and they go wistfully in their mind thinking, well, there was this thing that came out. Of, how long ago was that? It was like eight years ago. What's happened since? Why do you still do it? Well, if we're not here, they won't know we're still in business. Well, Believe to, it or not, I still hear that. To defend them, they may be getting good business out of it, but they're not. They could get a lot more if they had an intentional plan. Right. So that so showing up, well, and, and what that does too is that means they show up without a game plan as to what they're going to do to leverage that moment to your, to right. your example. So they come back from that very exhausted from you know McCormick Center in Chicago. They all got back on Monday and all those necessary follow-up steps to really take advantage of that investment. They haven't even talked about it until then. They said, what are we going to do now? Do yeah. we send cookies? Do we send thank you notes? I mean, what are we doing? Who collected contact info? Right, exactly. And, uh, and, and having that level conversation. Right. But they do it a month later too. Who's got the contact? Do we get anybody's right. emails? Should what we call happens somebody? Like 
it's like it's like a, a couple who gets married and they forgot to send a thank you note to Aunt Sally. And now it's a year later and it's just too darn embarrassing to send a thank you note. So they, they hope yep. never to run into Aunt Sally except maybe at her funeral. You know, that's 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 what they're hoping for. The same thing happens. So so a lot of those type of behaviors as we except observe, for Aunt Sally knows who you are in business, when you follow up six months later, it has a more negative effect. Well, I don't I don't know. It has a different effect because typically the response is, huh? Who's this? Like they don't remember who you are. No like, hey, it was nice meeting you at the show. You might as well not go and send that message, save a exactly. bunch of money. Exactly. Like you could hack it that way. We've we've looked at strategies where we say, what if we don't go to the show? Tell people ahead of time we're going to go to the show. Follow up with afterward. Will they even notice? Or, or even go to the show and don't exhibit and and spend yeah. some of that budget on really showing people a great time, like inviting them to Morton's <laughs> or to a Cirque du Soleil uh, show or something. They'll respond to that, and you'll get a lot more bang for the buck. But to answer your original question seeing a lot of those things that were done kind of either by culture, by habit, but never on purpose. It wasn't, they, were, they weren't really thinking, I can design growth for my business. How do you do that? That was the, the big idea. So, so we said, that's what we, and you know, we look back on the work we've done over the years with you know, dozens and dozens of companies. And we said, gee, it seems like we're always adding the on purpose part to their desire for growth. That's what we do. And uh, and, it, and it just kind of came out of that and it became the, the tag that we said best captured kind of the value we bring to the market. Well, it's kind of hijacked the show because it's such a good tagline. I love it. Um, and I love that it works not only with, hey, the trade show, if you're not getting anything out of it and you didn't even know it. But if you are, it's like, hey, what if you do it on purpose? Like maybe maybe your flag team is doing great. But what if you actually run some crossing routes knowing what's going to happen <laughs> on purpose? Like you could do way better and it would happen on purpose. Like that would be great. Um, all right. Well, great show. At start to the show uh, on purpose, business growth on purpose. But the topic here, focusing on success and, and how to win those obviously tie tie hand mm -hmm. hand in hand here but i think we got a whole can of worms to open here um can you i mean aside from the business growth on purpose or did we already kind of kind of touch it can you hit on what what do you mean by focusing on success and how to win sure uh so one of the things and and i think there's been a disservice to the small and mid-market uh business owner in the in the area of the best sellers. There's a lot of best sellers out there, right? So, you know, starting with, you know, In Search of Excellence with, you know, Tom Peters way back. Um, and then Good to Great with Jim Collins. And then, of course, uh, something, you know, we've talked about this before, you know, Start with Why with Simon Sinek and, or Blue Ocean Strategy. And every one of those things really um, kind of paint the picture of groundbreaking, revolutionary change. So if you're running a, a $15 million contract manufacturer, and you read one of those things, you might be inspired, you know, that that Sunday night, you say, honey, tomorrow is going to be a different week for us. The, the, but the simple reality is you're probably not going to change the world. Uh, it's unlike if you're in high tech, maybe you have a shot, you know, you come up with some very unique technology that changes the world. But here's the thing, it doesn't mean you can't win. Right. And so we have to get definitions uh, in place. It's not about revolutionizing the world. It's about winning. And I love using this example because everyone gets it right away. It's another athletic example. But the most aptly named human on the world is Usain Bolt. Right. So yeah. I mean, just like who knew. Right. So he's that's his name. And uh, he wins just about every time he runs. And but when he wins, because he's running against a field of other world class sprinters, 
he wins by fractions of a second. But here's the amazing thing that happens, even though it, sometimes it's a photo finish, right? He's consistent, but you know, it's not like he laps the field, it's a hundred meter dash. And here's the consistent thing. At each, uh, each event where he wins, he gets the gold medal. He doesn't get part of the gold medal. He doesn't get a frag, they don't shave off. Okay, you only won by one one hundredth of a second. So we're gonna give you a little bit of gold on the gold medal. He gets the entire gold medal. And, and I tell owners and, and other sales leaders this, especially in the mid-market, um, you only have to be, and you have to be though, but you have to be better than your competition enough to win the deal. You right. don't have to lap the field necessarily. You don't have to crush them into dust because what happens is unlike in the Olympics where the second place winner gets a nice silver medal, third place gets a bronze, they become an Olympic medal winner. That's still a great honor in business. You get, you're, you're the first loser. If you're in second place, right? You That's get not, nothing. In fact, you, nothing. You, you probably really are the first loser in that second place. You probably put out the second most effort. So you expended the second most amount of your resources to get nothing versus um, it's so I was I thought you were going with the sports thing saying it's a sports is a zero sum game and business is I could see looking at this both ways, depending on the big picture, um, you know, in sports, if you just make the pro tour you're making good money and you're a pro. Sure. You don't have to get first. So in that sense, it isn't a zero sum game, but either you're first or you're not also. Um, yeah. So it isn't like yeah, but let's, but let's uh, Usain Bolt doesn't get like, like, right. But, but you know, if, if you he raced me, he'd get 99.99% of the gold medal, but uh, anywhere right, else. Right. In but, a field. but if you look at the pro tour, that's a great example, right? So you say everybody on the pro tour makes a living and some of them make a decent living. But the disparity between the person who's like hundredth on the tour and the person who's consistently winning the master's jacket is orders of magnitude difference between that and that. And, and, and I, I honestly, you know, if you take your top 10 golfers in any given tournament, the, the, uh, the stroke difference between, except for when like Tiger was Tiger and he was, you know, the equivalent of lapping the field, but mostly it's pretty close. I mean, it's, what is it? It's uh 280 uh, would be for four days of, of golfing. Right. right. So it's it professional. Be, the difference between first and last is usually pretty small. They're all amazing. Pretty, pretty small. So here's the thing you're competing in your space. And so you say, okay, I'm one of four competitors consistently. So if you're winning 25% of your bids, then that means you're basically eh, middle of the road. You're getting one out of four. You're one out of four competing for it. If you're winning one out of six and you're only one of four competitors, then you really have some lacks. Something's lacking in what you're offering. Something's not connecting for your target market or you're aimed at the wrong target market, which is another real possibility. So the real winners are those that are going to win maybe not 100% of the deals, but they're going to start winning more consistently. They win 35% of those deals in a four-way uh, you know, shootout, so to speak. So the, the point is, and, and Sky, I just see this time and again, it's little things are big things. Little things are big things. Uh, going back to Usain Bolt, it turns out because of his stride length and his height, he needs uh, 39 strides to cover the ground where his average competitor needs 43. That's amazing. All right. Just because he's six foot six and he has long legs. So he's, it's less strides. I don't know the runner, but another example, I think of a similar thing and in being intentional. Uh, there was a sprinter that realized if they started off with a different foot in the blocks, um, when they, when they went over the hurdler, it was a hurdler when they went right. over the hurdle, then they landed on a different foot and it gave them like one less stride in the whole race or something like that. 
And they said it was, it was opposite. So it took, took some training, but they're like, Hey, both my legs are strong. I can lead off with either one. I just have to train to, to do it this way. It's like a baseball player kind of saying, Hey, you know what, what if I just taught myself to bat left-handed? I could do that. I just need some practice. And suddenly you have a switch hitter and they're that much better. It was, they, he looked at it intentionally and said, yes, I can keep just running hard and training and lifting weights. And he's like, what if I look at these other details and say, what tweak can I make? And then maybe the biggest example is the, the high hurdle, the guy sure, just kind sure. of reinventing how people jump over things and saying, Hey, let's look at this intentionally and see what can I tweak for a better outcome. And yet his equipment, i.e. his body as an athlete, there were yeah. other athletes as equal. Or Tom Brady deflating a football and saying, hey, my receivers can catch it easier if I deflate it, you know, so. Well, you got to play in the rules, right? But, uh, but still, I don't know. Sometimes you bend the rules a little bit. Some people will bit. say, hey, Tom Brady deflated the football and it worked, you know, and they, they recorded the other team's uh, practices and they beat him in the Super Bowl. And then you get the Astros cheating. And guess what? They still are the world champions. They still got the world. Champions. Got Sometimes people cheat a little bit to win. If you're not rubbing, you're not racing. If you're not cheating, you're not trying. There's a gray area there. There's a gray. Um, okay, but yeah, let's get away from the cheating part. There's a ton of things people can yeah, do. There's so many intentionally so many to things. win. Yeah, yeah, so many things. So, so like uh, there was one with a uh, helping a, a client out with. They were doing a trade show, and a simple hack. And so they said, you know, the, the, what often happens? We get so many people coming through. We're collecting cards. And, you know, the old, the age old thing is you write down on the back of a card, some note from the conversation you had, but then you get immediately pulled into the next conversation and so on. I said, why don't you try this? I said, why don't you instead just have a little recorder, use your phone. And at the end of each meeting, just go off like you're on a call and record your notes because you can say far more than you could write on the back of the card. Yeah. So you keep adding to that audio file. Then when you get back from the show, you upload it to a service like Temi. I have no interest in the company, but they, that's who I tend to use because it's very inexpensive. And now you get transcribed all your show notes. So you're not going to miss those details, right? So it's a little hack. It's the same effort that you were going to do. You're at the show. You want to take notes on your, on your meeting, but you're moving too fast. So you figure out little hacks like that. They can make a big difference. Now that's not macro. That's not your position in the market. That's just sales execution. But again, little hacks add up. And yeah. that's the real thing that, that I, I help people see that you don't have to, like they say, well, gee, you know, we, we have the equipment we have, we make what we make. We're not going to be able to spend $3 million to retrofit everything. I say, okay, great. Well, until you get there, <laughs> we have to find ways to win the races you're in now more, more consistently, more effectively, and at better prices than you've been getting. Because that's the other thing. You can always just say, I'm going to, I'm going to tweak my win rate in business if you just decide I'm going to eat margin to win the business, well, that's not a good strategy because it's not sustainable unless, unless you're really a big company that can bring your cost structure down. Or unless, I mean, unless there's a lot of extra margin in there, there's some businesses where it's just like, Oh, wow. It's a, when you get to the commodity thing, there's some businesses that are, they have limited competition. Strangely, there's only a handful of players. So the prices are inflated and it's like, Oh, nobody's gotten a price war. So there's actually a lot of room for margin here because there's just not real competition. I guess if you're in that situation, you have plenty of business though. Um, that, that's a, well, yeah, and, not and also, one to talk to. And, and also launching a, a price war, as you, as you put it, you know, could also, you have to say, okay, be careful what you wish for, because now, you know, so there's, there's a lot of questions around that, but again, in commoditizing markets, it means competition has come in. 
You're not alone. You're not doing sell bids. Everything you're in is like a three bid. You're always doing bake-offs. And what I've see, uh, seen, Sky, is increasingly in just about every business category, this is true. Because the world is globalized. Most services are available from anywhere in the world and to anybody in the world. And as a result, I and mean, even with the current supply chain issues, but you know, eventually the world will normalize back. You have a lot of competition. Everybody does at some form or another. It's very rare that you are literally standing uniquely on the pinnacle and say what we do, no one else does. Because there's always the question that comes to mind when somebody tells me that, and I've gotten this from, custom, from a potential clients to say, I don't have competition. I say, really? That's interesting. Because that would make Why you- Why are unique. we talking? Yeah, we're <laughs> unique in the world, right? Something's not right. And what happens is the competition more often is the status quo or you know, just the way people have been doing things. They've solving the problem some other way. So like when accounting software came in, if they only viewed other accounting software as their competition, they, they, missed, they didn't read the room, which is a lot of companies were still using like bookkeepers, like teams mm-hmm. of people to keep track of things. Eventually it became a competition of that. But the classic on this is a Kodak and Fuji. They were so focused on each other for film dominance that Kodak had the first patent on digital cameras issued in the US, but they didn't understand the opportunity they had. And so they kept fighting the last battle, which is it's about film until it became like, now everybody's a photographer if you have a phone. I was a photographer back in the day when we had film. I was So I'm very familiar with the Kodak debacle on, uh, on the digital thing and the history is littered with those kind of things. I mean, you have the Netflix and Blockbuster situation sure. and... And, and on and on. So let's, uh, I want to jump back to the, the focusing on the intentional, focusing on, on success and the, the marketing aspect of it. Little tricks like record the conversation at a trade show. Okay, great. Um, we had back in the day, a lot of competition in the data industry. It's consolidated a bit. We're kind of like a commodity. And I remember we send out PDF proposals to people. Okay. And that won us a lot of business just because our competition didn't do that. And what was interesting was we had been sending out some type of proposal. We remade them and we saw wins go up and it was just how professional the proposal looked, not just sending them something, but sending them something to sign, had everything in there looked professional versus the competition. The details in the deal are one thing, but when they get something from one company that you just lose trust, you're like, this looks like garbage. These guys aren't they aren't legitimate. They now they may have been much bigger than us and much better than us, but if what they were presenting, how they were presenting it looked unprofessional, uh, people would would choose us frequently just because our proposal looked professional and and, and yeah, that but, kind of stuff. So I think those but, kind of things can help. It's a little detail, but it helped us win business just because the competition wasn't coming right, so off we, well. We look at that again. You know, that's where the phrase competitive edge comes from. Those edges were little things that not necessarily that your product was intrinsically better, which is the intuitive reading of that. Say, okay, you're going to win because you're faster. No, like that hurdle you talked about, he's going to win because he changed his his approach to the race. His genetics didn't change. He didn't become faster, but he closed the ground quicker because he actually figured out an approach to it, right? So it's the same thing. The proposals you just mentioned, and I love that example because there's little things that you can do. And it comes down to this. I always say to customers, I say, okay, what in the world of your category drives customers crazy? Like what really ticks them off? What is annoying to them, right? For example, so I've been in categories where I see proposals are so dense and so complex that no one can understand what the heck you're actually offering. So yeah. like 
just that. And then he talked to customers and I've done like customer voice to customer interviews. And they say, yeah, I hate it when they send me stuff. It's too much information. In the case that you talked about quality, you signal quality by the quality of proposal. And this is something that often gets overlooked. We could spend a week, a weekend, 80 person hours on a proposal. So we think we know every inch of it. We don't realize that the people getting that might just glance at it. Right. And then go to the last page. You say, so why put all that effort in? Because that glance, they're making a judgment. We do it all the time with branding. And I'm sure this is what happened. They make a judgment in that moment, trustworthy because they paid attention yeah. to the details. It's kind of like, what is I, it's It's apocryphal, I guess. I, I think it's Bon Jovi with the, uh, the red M&Ms or the brown M&M. Brown M&M, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's the brown M&M test. It's like, did you pay enough attention? Did you care enough mm. about the business to put something together that if I chose to read it, it would tell me your story the way it's you want it? It's a subconscious brown M&M test. There, I remember uh, I was managing the sales team when we started putting this stuff together. And I would just get incensed when I would see sales reps sending out proposals that had multiple different fonts and font sizes in them. I'm just like, what are you doing? You, you filled in information, you changed... And it's in a different font. This just looks amateur and people glance at it. And that's what the, that's the impression they get. Same thing with samples. We'd send out samples and it took me forever to drum into these people. Hey, you get the sample. You got to format it now. It's going to be a CSV. You got to change it to an Excel file. You got to change the color. You got to bold this. You got to make it so that when people scroll, it's going to leave the heading. heading. Like that mm -hmm. is who our brand is. Uh, you said simple. If you go to look at a sample of something and it's a bunch of smashed Excel fields and you have to expand each one it's just a hassle. And that's your, the brand you're taking away from it is, Oh, these people are not easy to work with. Well, Their and, stuff and think is not about good. that too, Scott, from this point of view, if I'm your customer or a customer receiving stuff from whoever's trying to sell me stuff, I know, and I believe that what matters most to them at some level is to get this business. Like it's really important to them to get the business. Otherwise, why would they submit a proposal? So if they won't pay attention to the details when it matters to them personally, like someone's going to get paid commission on this and they can't take the time to not be a pain in my butt trying to unpack, like you said, Excel spreadsheets and have to figure it out. Then how are they going to do it when it when it's not as important to them because it's important to me, right? Yeah. So like if it's not important to them when it's important to them, how is it going to be important to them when it's important to me? And the That's details the frequently aren't consciously important to the client. Like maybe they didn't notice that when they open your Excel spreadsheet, they could just view the stuff. And when they open mm -hmm. samples from other companies that took a week to even get there, it was all smashed together. And it was, they just come away with a feeling of, I like working with these guys and not these guys. And they don't even know why, maybe they don't or, you know, even, even notice it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to get to something you brought up earlier. Um, you mentioned the books and it's a sore subject with me. It comes up on the podcast all the time. So I, I really wanted you to dig into it here for some us for some for us. Um, I get the feeling these books to some extent, and it's, you know, 
attacking someone like Simon Sinek, maybe not the best idea, but here we go. Um, to some extent are kind of like the diet fads where these people are just saying, okay, I need to sell another book. What's the concept? What am I going to call this? It sounds, okay, it's going to be the South Beach diet and we'll come up when really what people need to focus on is diet and exercise. You don't need to buy a new book every single year with a new, unless that actually motivates you to do the stuff and it works. That's really the only purpose is it's like, it's, it's a, it's a hack um, where, Hey, if I buy this book and read it, I will actually do something which is better than nothing. If I buy this expensive exercise equipment, maybe I'll actually exercise type of a, I don't need a gym membership, but if I'm pay, the more I pay, I find the more I go <laughs> kind of a right. thing. But these books seem to just be kind of gimmicks frequently to get people to buy the book and follow them and, and keep that. Like you just keep coming up with a new gimmick versus diet and exercise for sales and marketing. Just do the work, be intentional. You don't need to buy a ton of new books. So things like the start with why. I always think start with what, how about finish with why who's starting with why? Oh, but the guy isn't trying to sell the small businesses. He's trying to sell speaking engagements to fortune 500 companies. Right. And so he's telling them it should be like, start with why, if you've already won, <laughs> like if right. you've already won, then you can have a purpose and all this other bullshit. Um, but if you're a small business, uh, then maybe start with, uh, I don't know, like doing something intentional to actually win. Well, it's kind of like, you know, I call it like a, a plateau strategy, right? So if you're climbing Mount Everest, which I've never done and probably never will in my lifetime, but nonetheless, um, there's a point where you hit, have to be at a certain plateau, like you have to hit the certain summit before you do the final climb, right? So some of these books really aim for people on that summit who can actually look at that final climb, not the person who's down at the very base of the mountain or not even in, you know, the country, you know, they're not even right. in Nepal or whatever. But they want to sell the book to everybody because they can't just sell right. to the handful of people. Right. On so, that so, so some things, the way I've always viewed it, there's a, there's a few that I think have been very useful over time that I have found to be useful that uh, have big picture, but they have longevity. Um, and they actually make you think, and I've seen the application. One is a discipline of market leaders by Michael Tracy and Fred Wassmer. They wrote it like 25 years ago. Um, and that is a really good book for any owner at any level to really think about the future, what they need to do, how they should steer their company, where they should double down their investments. But then you get something like Good to Great, which is a very good book. And it's a good analysis. By the way, most of the companies they touted in Good to Great no longer are great, right? They, <laughs> you know, they, in fact, GE just is getting, it was announced a couple of weeks ago, they're being broken up into because they can't make it as the conglomerate they were. But I would point out the name of the book, kind of something they don't possibly point out in that book is it's not calling nothing to great it's good to great it's so to great, if right. you're not already good you don't need to read this book <laughs> they don't tell you that they're just like everybody should read this book good to great no it's how to get from good to great right. not from where well, you're at which isn't good yet and and, and the, the one that's i think that i've had the most difficulty with in terms of how i've seen it affect people is a, is a blue ocean strategy which is a great book in the first half of it's very inspirational second half on how to do it is not that practical and it's written by two like Harvard professors who were like Harvard professors, you know, it, was, it right. had that, that sense to it. And, you know, their answer was look at Cirque du Soleil that competed with Ringling Brothers and, and, and against circus, they became the uncircus. Well, you know, I think of my clients that are making like a mixing machine and they're doing, you know, $20 million a year selling this very highly specialized mixing machine. They're not going to become the unmixing machine. They, they have to sell more of that mixing machine. Right. So to your point, it's blocking and tackling is often overlooked. It's, it has to be done strategically. It has to be done intentionally. I do believe people can have 
I think it's good to have an aspirational goal for your business. You should want to be better. You should want to be special in some way. You have to find a special in what you're already doing. And that's what I love to focus in on is to really help people, uh, Sky, to see what you're already doing that might be more special than you know, but you never looked at it. And that specialness might be enough to create some air gap between you and your competition, just because something and you, something you're doing every day, but you may not have think. And, you know, I have a real example of this was a company was delivering home heating oil. So you think heating oil is a total commodity, a literal global commodity, heating oil right. number two. But I would guess there's a lot of companies that make a lot of money and do very good business doing it. They don't have to feel like they're failures if they don't become Amazon or something like that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But in that, and but that's an interesting challenge for heating oil is that the market's shrinking through no fault of the participants in the market. In other words, people buy new houses, they build, they build them with natural gas in mind, not oil. Yeah, I heard the world's work. getting warmer too. You don't need as much. Right, right. So they, exactly. <laughs> they go, they're going from, a, you know, so they say, so they go from oil to gas. But what turned out, uh, and they all use a formula to figure out when the homeowner needs to receive new oil. Right. Very simple. They call it the algorithm. Well, it turns out that the algorithm is only like 95% accurate. Right. So my client to reduce overtime. Okay. Because they were running, they were doing emergency runs on Saturday and Sunday because people were running out of oil. They commissioned a specialized algorithm. They worked on it for like two years. And when I asked them, I said, well, how, how accurate is that? And they said, well, 60,000 deliveries last year, we only missed nine. That's 99.999%. Right. So we created a campaign. And this is the, the, the point of the story, Scott. We said, others make promises. We make guarantees. We have the no runout guarantee if, we, if you sign up with us for automatic delivery. If we let you run out of oil, we'll fill your tank for free. Yeah. No one could make that guarantee because everybody would be terrified. At 5% misses, it'd be like you'd eat up your profits. Well, it turns out this company now is able to enjoy, even in the declining market, they enjoy roughly 30, 40, 50% more margin per gallon than any of their competitors because it's a better level of service. And by the way, did they change anything? No, they had already done it, but they did it for other reasons. Right. They did it to save on overtime. And but it was a way. great marketing um, part but of the was, product, but, part of the service becomes their marketing hook, kind of. But it wasn't their intention of when they when they did the work. And I'm and, and when you look at a lot of a lot of companies, you probably, if you're listening to this, you're probably doing some clever things that you did for other reasons, and you need a set of eyes on it to say, hey, is this something that would be important to our target customer? That's the differentiator question. You're you're right. finding a differentiator that you don't think is. You're like, what can we do to our product? And you're saying, hey. It's probably already in there. You don't necessarily need to do something um, like just look around your company and find the thing that could. And here's the key, I would say in that it doesn't have to be. And you said it, so I'll repeat it. A giant differentiator like we have half the cost or whatever. It's it's something that marketing can make sound like a big differentiator. And the people sometimes you see this in commercials and cat and you're like, oh, if you really look at the commercial and pay attention to what they're saying, you'll be like, wait, why would I give a damn about that? <laughs> but normally you don't look at it and think about it. You just think, oh yeah, I like that. Oh yeah. Oh, that sounds great. It rhymes. It has some, uh, you know, alliteration to it. So, so I like that. So frequently the marketing differentiator doesn't have to be some big, massive world changing thing. It can be some little thing that they did for accounting purposes. <laughs> 
it could it could be for that but it's it's but it but the acid test on it is is it something that would be especially in b2b that would be important to your target customer does it help solve a problem and of course in the case of you if you're depending on oil to keep your home warm it really does matter that you not run out of oil in the middle of winter. All right. Yeah. So like, that's a, not a small detail really matters. I and, don't ever get the heating oil thing. Cause I live in LA. Okay. And then I, I grew up in a rural area and we just had, if it was like, we deliver firewood, I'd get that. You won't run out of firewood. I think about it that way. Maybe yeah. But the heating oil thing to me sounds like, are we in medieval Europe or something? What no, the it's hell still, is the, throughout the Northeast and you go further up into like the, the new England area. People have 285 gallon tanks in their basement and the truck comes by and fills it with oil. I've seen after, movies after, where it's a thing. No, but... it's a definite thing. It's a definite <laughs> thing. It's an interesting, now it's, it's a declining thing. And you know, a hundred years from now, it won't be a thing maybe, but it still is because it's very expensive to convert your yeah. home from a oral heater to like also an HV, you know, uh, Air, uh, regular oil uh, gas based heater. If people from those areas want to blow the minds of people from like California and West Coast, just start talking about the whole heating oil. We'll just be like, <laughs> Are you making this up? This sounds so fabricated. It's so foreign. <laughs> Whenever somebody brings it up, I think, Wait, that's still around? I didn't know it was still a thing. It just sounds ancient. Like, uh, like you're gonna have it's a like people making it lamp bread too. because there's because there's no bread available in the growth. You mean you buy bread pre-baked? Yeah. <laughs> How do you even bake bread? Come on, that's made up. Uh, um, yeah, so sorry for a tangent there, but the heating oil no, thing always so uh, always throws me off. Um, so let's you've thrown out a couple great examples um, on some like little tweaks people can do, but you guys have this this thing in your company and we normally get into the company after the break and into you after the break, but we're not doing a break. So here we go. Um, can you, can you tell the audience a little bit about, about yourself, how you came to, uh, to be where you are, how you came to, to, to found value prop. Uh, and then we'll get into value prop, kind of what you guys do and uh, hit on your guys competitive edge program, which I think is all about this whole topic of focusing on success. Sure, sure. And no, I appreciate that. Yeah. So after what I've been probably a, a little over a 20 year career arc in um, mostly in technology, mostly sales and marketing, although I had actually done programming, project management and so on. Um, I came to a point when we moved to this area of the country, we, I'm a native New Yorker born and raised. So I always say I'm a New Yorker living outside of Philadelphia. So that's where I live right now. And uh, I, I, I saw a gap and the gap was this that the discipline of strategy, marketing, and sales were treated like three different, completely unrelated buckets. Large companies do that very well. They keep them in silos and you know, don't touch my territory. Every, very territorial. It's just how it is in most large companies. They're already large, though. They can do all kinds of things a small company can't do. They have gravity. Exactly. But now when you move down into the mid-market, what you lacked there was not a lack of integration, but it was a lack of skill or awareness of how those things could work together. And so you had business owners saying, well, we're solving our, we're solving our, our marketing with, let's say, just we're going to buy a discrete service, a lead gen service, or we're going to do AdWords, we're going to do a new website, we're going to do a trade show thing. And they're doing all these pieces. And I said, wait a second, stop, you know, like time out. Like, let's come up with a game plan, right? And so again and again, I started doing that work. And so I started the firm uh, close to 15 years ago and uh, with an eye towards really building out processes, methodology that help any size company. So because my heart was really with that entrepreneurial owner 
who has to worry about payroll, right? That that right. that person very much on my mind. So that's a uh, tough. Wait a second. That's a really tough to say. I'm going to start a company. Typically, people it seems like with a company like that um, are working at a company and then they start providing a service and you kind of spin off into a company because you have to have a couple big clients and usually it's your old company becomes your first client. But to say I'm going to start a company and then I'm going to go after this this industry that's going to be really hard to sell and really hard to get any money from because they don't have much of it. Like, how did that work early on in the business? How did that formation actually happen? Yeah, well, the first step was I, I took time out from my last position. I said, okay, I'm going to take about six months to a year and I'm actually going to interview as many people as would be willing to talk to me. And I'm going to actually tell them what I think should work. At that point, I had 20 plus years experience. I'd seen lots of great examples. So you did some market research first. Right. A real point of view. It wasn't looking to hustle up business. If it came my way, that'd be great. But my goal was to validate that I had the right ideas that made sense, especially for the size audience I was aiming for. If you'd recorded that, you would have had a podcast before they even yeah. existed. Well, I mean, it, I, I actually ended up with like a book as a result. Mm -hmm. You know, So there you go. So, uh, uh, But yes, it was that, that idea was I wanted it to have, I wanted to approach this very uh, systematically, but I wanted something that was flexible enough that people could see themselves in the process. Sometimes processes feel like you're putting on a hair shirt and it's like, oh, it's too much. You have to be flexible. It has to be realistic and it has to be right-sized. The other thing, I've been exposed working in other small companies when you bring in the big, the, uh, the consultant whose only experience was in big corporate <laughs> and they come in trying to tell you, this is, we got to do Porter's five forces analysis and we got to do this and that. And also you're looking around and say, Hey, dude, we just like, I'm working this deal right now. Can you help me with that deal? Right. That's what you want. So they're jumping. They're saying, let's spend the first two weeks on your company's why. And you're like, Hey, I got to close this deal. Can you give me a Cor tip? Correct. <laughs> Correct. So, so there is, you know, there's, so over the years I've developed the kind of what I think is like the right balance. You need to have some thought put into it. And at the same time, you also don't want to overthink it because you got to implement, right? So, you, and you're going concern. You have to make payroll now. You have to make stuff happen. Yep. So we got that down, you know, to a much tighter thing. So, so that that journey for me was very much, you know, certainly the entrepreneurial journey. I think what what the impetus behind it, though, and I'll just share this very quickly with you, Scott. I was doing business development for a market research firm. They were competitive with Gartner, so they sold, and and I handled mm -hmm. their IT leadership accounts worldwide. I had a meeting where I had to bring in our specialist who was all of like 28, 29 years old at the time. And I was a business dev person. And we were meeting with a VP at IBM who managed a billion dollar P&L. And this 28, 29 year old, very nice young man, very smart, was giving all this advice. And I wanted to speak up about what I thought they should do, but that wasn't my role. I was biz dev. It would have been like the it would have been like the uh, the butler in Downton Abbey speaking up about a family issue at the dinner table. It would be like odd. So that moment sealed in my heart. I said, I got to be the one giving the advice. I can't be doing this. I, I can't just be getting other advisors who I don't think candidly, and I don't mean this to be you know boastful, but you know can't can't carry my shoes on, on the advice they're giving. So that's really what got me on track. And about a year later is when we moved down to this area, took a year off to, to really think it through. And that launched Value Prop Interactive as a result. So but I love that because you frequently hear these stories of people saying, you know, I watched Michael Jordan play and I was just like, I want to be a basketball player. That's awesome. I'm like, really? Because I think maybe if you watch like somebody who's terrible, you'd say, I could do that better. 
maybe I should be a professional. Like if I watch Michael Jordan play, I'm like, well, I'm never playing basketball. <laughs> that ain't going to happen. You saw this, you were sitting to me with this guy and you were like, holy shit, I should be doing that. Not him. I shouldn't be sitting here listening to him. I should be doing it. I'm better than that. Um, so it was the, the realest version of being inspired to do something is typically saying, Hey, I'm better than that. Not, wow. I could never do what that guy's doing. So let me try to do it. Let me try it anyway. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. That's funny. Uh, yeah. I mean, I remember when I, we went on a family vacation to, uh, to Italy and I went to Florence and I saw Michelangelo's David, right. Mm-hmm. 15 foot tall sculpture and you thought and, i could be a sculptor no i mean <laughs> <laughs> you realize that's insane because there's no glue then like if, <laughs> it, you know what I mean? like there's no repair work that's like you either got it right on the first on the chisel stroke and it's you know it's a it's a masterwork for the ages but but exactly to your point no well, i think I, i'm going to start a business selling all the davids the first 50 davids they got wrong like, oh, this one, yeah, one of the legs got lopped off, broke by accident. And I'm sure they didn't get it on the first try. Come on. Yeah. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of like reject Davids out there somewhere buried. We just kind of find them and start selling the, uh, oh, made the head a little bit too small on this one. Uh, <laughs> Let's try it again, right? Yeah. The, no, the, it just, but but you're, you're right. Yeah, I just, it was at a point in my life where I felt I, I had something to contribute, something to give back. I had been building into it. And, um, and, and I wanted to really give it a, a, I felt I had something to share and, and I really resonated. I hadn't done a couple of entrepreneurial things earlier in my life. Um, I, I felt I could really relate to that business owner that when they read the corporate material or they went to ac- academe, like through a small business development center, at like Wharton or whatever, great, helpful people, but not really connecting with your reality in that company. Right. And, and I felt I could relate to that person, but also show them I've also seen how it gets done and how you have to work it. It's the reason I was surprised by your kind of how you came to start your business. I mean, typically you don't create a product for the small companies that are really hard to sell and don't have much money because they're really hard to sell and don't have much money. You don't, you don't write the book necessarily to them, although maybe you could do it with the book, but you come up with the, the big philosophy that gets you in front of the Fortune 500 companies. You come up with a how to be successful where you can sell it for a million dollars a pop, not $1 a pop. Uh, So you end up getting everybody who wants to become successful gets this, oh, here's how you do it. And it's look at what the successful people are doing versus, well, maybe look at what they did when they weren't successful yet. I I just see that repeating all the time. Let me me just hit on that a little bit though, Scott, because if you take your your classic $10 million OEM, small OEM, they make a machine, a part of a supply chain part. Um, You know, they have two sales reps on staff. They're doing two trade shows a year. They're maintaining their website and they actually have an SEO firm and maybe they've even experimented with AdWords or something like that. We're talking about Tommy Boy here, right? Yeah, yeah. But but altogether, you're adding. If you add it up, you're spending half a million dollars a year trying to drive your top line on a ten million dollar business. Mm-hmm. So for you to invest less than that amount to get to point that firepower, it's not unlimited firepower, but it's some firepower in the right direction makes sense. And I have found uh, I found no lack of business owners in that category, that two to twenty million dollar range that will make the necessary investments. There are some. No doubt. Oh, say- okay. My mistake. I didn't clarify ahead of time. In my mind, we were talking about um, 
million less than a million dollar companies you're saying mid-market not not small mid-market two to yeah then there's a way more room to do business right um people who go after the the solopreneur and stuff like that i always feel like that's maybe not the best market unless you have a mass produced that you have product. to be you have to be mass you're doing some sort of like you know e-learning kind of thing yeah. and what i found actually you know i made a couple of for you know i've been doing this for a while and with with startups right especially like tech startups because that's my my earlier background and i know i could help them but what happens is if they're too if they haven't been beaten down yet by life experience they're too darn sure of themselves right and it's just hard for me to connect so i like dealing with confident people who have some enough humility to know they don't know everything right, right. they they know they're not the best anymore <laughs> Right, but if <laughs> they it, don't it, think they're going to change the world. Like we started right. with, it's not. Right. But if, you're but not going to change the just, world if they're just so confident. Then at that point, and I've had, you know, I've tr- I said, listen, you might consider. You know, I'm not trying to have a, a battle of egos with them. I'm just saying, hey, I want to help you. This is something you might consider. And no, no, we got that. We got that. So yeah. you hear a lot of we got that. At that point, I know that's not a good pairing with me. If they still think they're amazing, you're like, eh, yeah. Until you, I love that. Until you get beaten down and you realize oh, I am not the best and I'm not going to change the world. I do need help. Maybe other people know stuff. You get humbled. You get, And yeah. again, the opposite of what people you just say, oh, I won the Super Bowl. So humbling. No, when you get your ass kicked and you don't even make the playoffs, that's humbling. That's humbling, right. <laughs> not winning the Super Bowl doesn't humble you. I'm sorry. <laughs> Getting your ass kicked hum- humbles you. Not, not the uh, people always get this stuff so backward. It's so weird. Um, okay. We're running short on time here and we haven't barely got to, to your company or specifically to this competitive edge program you guys have. Um, it's kind of what we've been talking about the whole time, I believe, but can you give some specifics, break it down a little bit for what, what your competitive edge program is? Right. So the competitive edge program is a 90 day program where we work with a single company and their leadership team. And we meet every week. And we work through the development of what we call the competitive edge blueprint, basically designing that plan. Covers their value prop, their target customer, target problem, how they're going to actually generate opportunities at bats, and how they're going to do better on the sales process side to actually execute against those at bats. At the end of that period of time, they actually have an actionable plan. These are all like simplified. It's not the hundred page document. It's really more of a picture, a blueprint. Think of blueprint as a really good thing. So if they're thinking of building their success, they want to win more. Mm-hmm. And that's what you need. You need some sort of design. So the you're take- tailor creating a list of like really getting to know their business and creating, here's a list of to do's, change this, change that. I had somebody go through Google AdWords a while back and I realized, oh, way more people need this. They're like, why is this checked and this not? That's dumb. Unchange right. this, change that. And I was like, wow, in 10 minutes, somebody who knows what they're doing can look through certain things and just be like, nope, turn this off, turn that on, turn this. And you're like, oh, right. now that, it makes sense. Yeah. And that's why we better. call it, we call it a done with you consulting engagement. I am a consultant. I'm the chief practitioner, have lots of experience doing this with companies and, you know, generating $250 million in growth in the last 10 years, just the companies I've worked with. So the goal, though, is to work him through a process. And here's the real, the real thing of it that I think is it's exciting to me doing it and exciting for people to go through it. You could do this as a three-day mountaintop retreat and just bang through the discussions, the materials, and so on. What happens is by day three, everybody's fried. Nobody remembers, okay? No one had time to think about anything, really. You're right. just banging through to the answers. 
So by doing it as a weekly session, a leadership team meeting for 90 minutes, we cover one topic, we can go deep. The next week, we can actually recap and people have been thinking about it. So, you know, I thought about it. And this is something else we hadn't mentioned. And this is possible. So you, you make this something, and this is really critical for anyone who owns a business and has a couple of people on their leadership team. You need everybody to be on board. So it also doesn't work if I just work with the owner, the CEO, we go off to the mountaintop and we come down like with stone tablets and say, here's what we're going to do. And the rest of the team, the person in operations, the person in sales, whoever's doing any kind of marketing, the CFO saying, well, you know, if he had asked me, I would have told him that's dumb. That's well, I, I think that stone tablet story has a part, I believe, that uh, that people tend to leave out. They brought down the stone tablets and said, who's with me? Come over here. Everybody else go over there. And then they slaughtered the people who weren't with them. So as a company, <laughs> you can just say who's on board with this and then fire everybody who's not on board. Or you can work with everybody. Work with yeah. everybody and get it. So, so what you end up with is I think something that creates a lot of generated excitement and then clarity. And then the things are always right sized to what can you do like that? This process led to that oil example I gave, which is a real world example of just digging and digging it and finding something. So let's build on that as opposed to we're going to tear everything apart. And it sounds uh, like you don't have a pre-written playbook. You're coming in, understanding the company. Oh, here's what they can do specifically for their situation. Absolutely. Uh, we, we work through. We, we have definitely a process that we walk them through, but I don't go in there saying, I want you to be this kind of business. I always tell owners, look, you have in mind what kind of business you want to have and what you think is possible. So I'm going to rely on that as, as, a, as a North Star for us, right? And, and if it's not ambitious enough, I'm going to help you a little bit. But again, you don't have to want to change the world. You know what they mostly tell me? I love to see 5 to 10% growth year over year for the next five years. Yeah. So incremental growth. Way, that's, Although 5 that's to 10 is pretty good. That's real growth. Yeah. I mean, that's like, that's like significant. Or I'd like to... I like to preserve my margin because they're being killed on margin at that right. size company. They're like, I don't even want to grow. I just want to stop getting my ass kicked. Absolutely. <laughs> and you know what I've seen, I've seen companies that have grown like this, but their cost structure came up right alongside of it. And the owner that used to own a $2 million business now owns a $10 million business, but isn't making any more money. Right. So I said, well, gee, you're, you're like five times bigger, but your personal take home is like the same. That's not good. You have to find a way to make money because that's the end of the game. That's the only thing that keeps you in the game. I love the practicals. I mean, so many of these consulting things seem like, uh, you know, back to the sports analogy, you have the three-day thing. You're like, well, we can't do anything like tactical here. Um, so let's just have it be a pep rally. People will feel great when they come out, but you're not really getting any takeaways. If you try to pile that on them, it just like you said, they get saturated quick and then nothing's going to happen. It seems like you're coming in and saying, we're going to rework your playbook, not just give you the one I already printed out and say, go with this. We're going to make a playbook just for you. We're going to work with your people to, to, to make this fit yeah, your we're, team we're, kind of and have we're a We're documenting as we go along. So literally, like if I'm doing this in more typically over Zoom with the leadership team on Zoom, we're actually, as we're working, we're putting the answers down as they've come up with them so that at the end, they not only get the recording of the session, which maybe they don't have time to listen back to, but they took that 90 minute meeting and they got it distilled down to like, here's the one pager related to this. Here's the one pager related to that. So you put that together, putting that into action, then it's very easy because you, you actually have the plays. You need plays in a playbook, right? Or we yep. prefer blueprint, but that's the, the same idea. And uh, that's what we get them to. And then of course, you know, just the background and experience that I bring to the table helps Sky Candidate. I love solving the problem and they know I have enthusiasm for their challenge. 
And once they know that, then we're, we're working with them as kind of like, I'm, I always tell the owner, I'm on your side of the table. That's why we don't do implementation, right? As a firm, we don't do, we're not going to redesign your website. We're not going to set up your AdWords campaign. If you need those resources and you have somebody you'd like to work with, we don't care. We'll help you work with them, but we want you to give them better instructions so you get a better result, which a lot of owners don't know how to task these people to do things. They're, they're at the, they're really kind of like, okay, guys, you're the expert. Tell me what to do. And I'm saying, no, no, you can actually give some direction, uh, you know, enough so that, that that practitioner that you're hiring can do a better job for you. Right, right. It sounds to me a little bit like, um, just to wrap it up here, like uh, like your business is a um, Mr. Miyagi style business where you're saying also, going back to the one thing, something you said earlier that I really loved, you're saying you, you need to work with people who've been beat up a little bit. You didn't go find the bully and say, I'm going to train you to really kick some ass because it'd be like, I'm already kicking ass. What are you talking about, old man? Um, like you find the kid who got beat up and he's willing to listen and like, hey, you want to learn how to defend yourself and, and maybe win? And he yeah. says, oh, okay, I'll listen to you. Um, yeah, wax, wax on, wax off. That's, yep. uh, I love it. All right, so... Um, Let's let people know where they can find you here. Uh, we'll have this all in the show notes too, but your LinkedIn sure. profile, probably a great place to communicate. Absolutely. Um, valueprop.com for your company website. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yes. And then and you've got a podcast. Know, yep. Yep. That, the, that's, that's the, the revenue throughput podcast. We'll have a link to that on the, in the show notes too, at um, if you market.com uh, any, anywhere else people should, uh, should know to get in touch with you. Yeah, the, the, they can find it off the menu, but if they want to deep dive on this idea of competitive edge, of building and sharpening their competitive edge, they go to valueprop.com forward slash edge and it'll tell them all about it. I mean, all the details on it and then how to get in touch with me if they want to talk about possibly doing it for their company. Excellent. So if you're a $100 million company, Jose will still take your money, but it's probably not the best fit. If you're, if you're what, uh, like two to 10 million, two to 20 million, I think two you're saying. Million, uh, the, uh, um, the own, I always say where the owner still has their hands on the steering wheel. Right. And you're having some, now what's, is the point in that, that there's somebody that can get stuff done versus a committee that you have to try to squeeze stuff through? Yeah, I think there's one is that there's a clear leadership there, right? Otherwise you end up with somebody who has a title of president, but the real owners are like in the shadow background. And I've seen this a lot with smaller firms and it's not as effective right. so i like and, and plus the passion i like work and owner it really matters like right. the change matters it's personal it's not business it's personal excellent all right well um check out the show notes if you market.com and uh, you can find more information there on jose palomino and value prop and uh, thank you for listening to the if you market podcast where we believe if you market the shit out of it with a competitive edge they will come Are you looking for new leads or always in need of quality contacts for your marketing campaigns? But list companies and online tools are the worst, right? Well, then you've got to check out Top Data Search by Mountaintop Data. At Mountaintop Data, we're a team of weird people that actually like getting our hands dirty with sales and marketing data, and we specialize in business contact information. We compile and maintain a database of tens of millions of targeted high-quality business decision makers with emails, phone numbers, mailing address, and all the information you need. Go to topdatasearch.com and request a free account with the promo code IYM1000, like if you market the podcast here, and get a free account with unlimited searches, no seat fees, and 1,000 free record download credits. That's topdatasearch.com.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.